Welcome to episode 74 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Nicole Crane. And as always, The Real Photo Show is sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program chaired by Charles Traub. And on that note, you've heard me thank Liz Zito and Brenda Hung for supporting the show. But I don't think I've ever properly thanked Seth Lambert, who is the systems administrator at the graduate program and an artist in his own right. Seth has saved the show's ass on more than one occasion when I have forgotten a piece of equipment, which includes showing up with my Zoom recorder and no SD card. Seth, of course, was also the person who set everything up and made everything work when I did the live show with Martin Bell when we discussed uh, his work with Mariel and Mark. And this summer, Seth was sometimes the only person there when the grad program was under a lot of renovation and was able to find me rooms to record in when the usual room was filled with chairs and desks. So thank you, Seth, and check out his work at sethlambert.net. All right, so let me read to you a little from Nicole Crane's bio at NicoleCrane.com. Nicole has over eight years of experience as an editorial and documentary photographer with a body of work ranging from social issues in the South to international stories in Nepal, Jamaica, and the Middle East. A recent graduate of the Eddie Adams Workshop, Nicole has worked on local and international assignments and photographed stills and video alongside top documentary filmmakers. Nicole has owned and operated a photo studio in Brooklyn for four years, in addition to shootings for New York Times, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, Intercept, New York Daily News, and Getty Images. Her work has been published in New York Times, Forbes, Billboard, Discover Magazine, Huffington Post, and New York Magazine. Nicole is currently based between Brooklyn, New York, and Atlanta, Georgia. So that describes some of Nicole's accomplishments, but it doesn't really describe how she's able to do what she does. Uh, Nicole's successes in the documentary photojournalism world can be attributed to her ability to know when it's time to walk away and when it's time to lean in. Uh, Nicole has walked away from a few steady photo-related jobs in New York that others would kill to have uh, in order to pursue her work, and even one time so she could meet Questlove. <laughs> and there's more on that in the episode. These moments created a space in her life where she could then lean in to pursue opportunities by not being afraid to just call people up. Uh, this led to getting into the Eddie Adams workshop, joining the Everyday Project, showing her work to the New York Times, and receiving some serious interest in her family-based project, which we will talk about a lot in the show. We'll also talk about race, politics, censorship that she experienced at SCAD, and getting work as a female photojournalist. Okay, so just a few announcements before we start the show. On August 23rd, which is two days from when I'm recording this, there is the annual New York City Street Photography Collective Member Exhibition at the Soho Photo Gallery at 6 p.m. On September 13th at the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, Andrea Modica will be presenting her work, including her series on the Mummer's Day Parade in Philadelphia. Uh, that is from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Dryden Theater, Rochester, New York. On November 3rd, there's Art All Day in Trenton, which takes place at Artworks from 12 to 6 p.m. And I think there's still time to register for that. You can check that out by searching for Art All Day Trenton on Facebook. And finally, just a reminder, on September 6th from 5 to 7 p.m., Lost Event by Ryan Casey will be showing at my very own JKC Gallery in Trenton. Also, I will be recording an episode of the show with Ryan uh, starting at 6 p.m. So check that out. You can see more information at realphotoshow.com website. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. 
so hot out too. It, it was. I was like in the cab and I was like, I should just get out and walk it. I was like looking at the red on Google Maps. I was like, just uh, walk it, yeah. just walk it. Where do you come in from? I came in from, from Brooklyn, but the train was like barely <laughs> moving. Yeah. And I was finally just like, fuck it at Bedford. Uh-huh. I'll take a cab. And then it was like, as soon oh, as you I got sh- out in Brooklyn and took yeah, a cab. Yeah, because it was just like not wow. moving. And I know that sometimes like between like Bedford and first, if it's going slow, like it yeah. goes really slow through there. I was like, okay, I should just take a cab. It'll well, be fine. But that was a fail. Props to for that. <laughs> I mean, that's a bold move. Getting <laughs> off the train, hopping in a cab while you're still in Brooklyn. Yeah. I was like, uh, it'll be fine. But I just wanted yeah. the AC, to be honest. But I yeah. take a... Uh, New Jersey Transit in, and oh I had a, it was a really weird experience, actually. I um, The train started vibrating a lot, <laughs> and then we, I think we did five miles an hour all the way from Secaucus to Hoboken. <laughs> it's like, they're going to get us there one way or the other, but we're probably leaving parts behind us as we go. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually go out to Jersey a lot for one of my clients' Liberty Science Center, and I, I have a Vespa, but it was stolen like a week ago. What? Yeah. No, that was good. That's, that's, like that's my, my mi- first question. The v- <laughs> <laughs> the Vespa. <laughs> the baby blue Vespa. If you see a baby blue Vespa <laughs> oh, around no. Brooklyn Basically, with a Bernie 2020 I, sticker. My, you know, I wanted to, uh, I was going to lead in with a joke, but uh, so, you know, you're, <laughs> so Nicole Crane, you, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you Crane shoot train. For, you shoot for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and Intercept and the Daily News and Getty Images. And was Getty Images how you met Preston Resigno, who yeah, I actually didn't know suggested him. you for the podcast? Yeah, I actually yeah. didn't know him while I was there, but then kind of met him editing, or he was editing an assignment I was shooting, so that's how I met him. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you have all these great accolades, but all I really want to know is what's with the baby blue Vespa? <laughs> it's missing <laughs> from Moyer Street and Graham Avenue in Brooklyn. If you see it, it's a baby blue Vespa. So you parked it and it was stolen? Oh, yeah. There's like security footage. Was just. Oh, you saw? Did you see the person oh, yeah. get on and right away? And yeah. Does it, is it, did it have a key or? No. Oh. Like he just like rolled it away. Oh, like he a, pushed it away. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> but yeah. did you really, were you really getting around on a Vespa? All the time. That was like my freedom ride. <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> I kept getting assignments in Brooklyn and it was really hard to get yeah. by uh, there through public transit. Like half the time I would just be like, fuck it, I'll take a cab. Am I allowed to curse on this? <laughs> you are totally allowed to curse on this. <laughs> I yes, curse we, a lot. We call it the Patrice Helmar rule. Patrice was my first guest that, that swore up a storm and so I put an explicit rating on the podcast ever since <laughs> good we have to make sure we get one of those on yeah yeah but yeah that's how I got the Vespa and it got me around anywhere I needed to go oh. and went to the beach a lot just oh, wow. attempted to take the ferry out to Rockaway this weekend which was also a failure I do not recommend the ferry oh. out to Rockaway on the weekends don't yeah. do it <laughs> <laughs> well all right so you did meet Preston through Getty you yeah. said, right? But you didn't, you, did you say you didn't know him at first? Were you shooting for Getty? I was actually editing with Getty Entertainment for a while. Oh, and yeah. then I actually didn't know Preston while I was at Getty. But actually, just like maybe six months ago, I was shooting mm-hmm. with another photographer who and Preston was an editor. So since then, I've, I've worked oh, okay. with Preston <laughs> as my editor on assignments. So Oh, yeah. Well, now he's just doing, a, he's doing freelance editing, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I've known Preston since uh, 1987, I think. Oh, wow. Here at the School of Visual Arts. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Is he, yep. did he go to school here? Yeah. Preston and I went to school here. Yeah. Yeah. We should just use the whole podcast to, to talk right. about Let's talk Preston. about Preston. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. No. <laughs> but, um, so where, where did you grow up? I'm from Atlanta. I was actually mm-hmm. born in East Point. I don't even know if the South Fulton Hospital is there anymore, but oh. that's where I'm from. Uh-huh. My family is primarily from Alabama, so most people just assume based off of my work, I'm from Alabama, but I am there a lot. Well, I you got the accent, but I can put it on if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Dollar yes. and Hart, number that's... three on the track, number one in our hearts. <laughs> did you did you really have a stronger accent before you moved up north? Or? I I did, but to to be honest, when I was younger, like my family all has like a very strong Southern accent, oh. but my mom married a Yankee. Oh, okay. Um, and when we traveled up here when I was a kid, like I remember his their family or his family, my stepdad's family making fun of us right. and our accents. So like I think by the time I was like maybe 15 or old enough to realize that I sounded a little silly. Like I kind of <laughs> trained and rehearsed myself to not have it. Right. But of course, like the first question I got when I moved to New York is like, where's your accent? Oh, yeah. So now I just have catchphrases. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I. So I, I grew up uh, both Florida and New York, but even in Florida, I was always surrounded Florida, by, yes, surrounded <laughs> by Northerners, really, right? It was just transplanted, uh, you know, Philadelphians and New Yorkers and all. So I don't think I was ever really exposed to the, the Southern accent. Yeah, <laughs> it's there. Yeah. But you, you do list yourself as based still in uh, Georgia and here, right? Yeah, I travel back and forth a lot for some projects that I'm working on down there, mainly a family story that I've been working on. And so I'm back and forth quite a bit. I do try to pick up assignments when I'm down there when I can. So if there are campaigns or anything, I did Roy Moore. I've done yeah, I saw uh, Hurricane Irma. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I go back and forth. Right. And you, you also, um, you covered Donald Trump a little bit. Was that at the Roy Moore campaigns? Or? That was, he did a rally in Pensacola, right uh, or actually during the Roy Moore campaign, like I think the election was a day or two I after remember that. that. Yeah, that was pretty raucous. Yeah, yeah roll tide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roy Moore was interesting. Yeah, what 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 was your experience like covering the, some of that campaign? Oh, like, I don't know, PTSD for like my <laughs> conservative religious family. <laughs> it was like, you uh-huh. can't win this. Um, it was... I mean, it was bizarre. Like it was, you know, I'm, and in a large part, I've grown up around that and my family comes from that. So right. um, I'm used to it to that extent. But at the same time, it was like, you know, I'm the I'm the one that got away. I'm like the black sheep, like no kids. Like, what are you doing in, in New York? And why aren't you married with like five <laughs> children living in Alabama? <laughs> do, like, do you come from a very conservative family? I mean, religious. They're just... Right. Yeah, I mean, they are... Southern Baptist? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up Pentecostal, actually. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, we prayed over my asthma. It never went away. Like, I don't don't know what happened, but really (laughs) bizarre. Actually, at the Donald Trump rally, the preacher, when I was growing up, was Pentecostal. And his, he has a twin brother that I was not aware of. And actually at the Donald Trump rally, I was like, Jerry, like Pastor Jerry. And he was and like, wasn't, he turned around and he was like, Jerry's my brother. And I was like, wow. what? I like took a photo and sent it to my mom. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, but um, I am from the South. My family's definitely from that. But again, like. What's the, uh, I, 
So I may have missed it when you said it. What's the connection between Alabama and Georgia? You were born in Atlanta, you said, right? Yeah, I was born but, in Atlanta, but my entire family, for the most part, is from... Is that because your mother moved out to Atlanta? My grandfather left. He was a steel worker, so he actually moved the family out of Alabama, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he got us out, and then they did like the classic white flight to the suburbs. Mm-hmm perfectly tracing history so yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're more in the atlanta suburbs yeah they're yeah. there now um mm-hmm. i was born in in the city and then we moved to the suburbs so and you do still go back now and you're photographing in alabama yeah your family yeah right. so when i was in college i was doing male nudes and getting censored a lot by where, scad where oh and scad okay. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were censoring my work. Why? Scad? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's odd. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're conservative. Like, they're... Yeah, that, have that's interesting. I patrons that's, so it's not, on the board. Do you th- so. Is that still true? I wonder if they've I mean, changed. I mean, no. I mean, it is... Mm-hmm. They're like a kind of so, corporate So weird. female nudes okay, male nudes not okay? Right, right. Yeah. So, and I was a printmaker initially. That was initially going to be my major. And then I switched to photography almost because of the censorship because mm-hmm. I was doing male nudes and and when I was doing printmaking and it was like etchings, but that would get censored from like open studio shows. And so I was in a photo class. I was, I was a photo minor and we were doing like a postmodern theory class and we were doing feminism. So I started doing female nudes. And then I was like, wait a minute, like this Uh has been censored. And you know, you had to defend it with um, the tools that you've been given throughout the class. So I started doing the male nudes as photos. And kind of in a way, like I knew that it was going to be an issue. But regardless, you were trying to push something, see where you could go. Yeah, I was like, well, this is okay, but this isn't okay. So like, let's put some male nudes up there. You didn't (laughs) like the the etchings. You'll love the photo. Like (laughs) It's usually the other way around, right? Yeah. And no, it was like, so it was like the second year in a row that Mm -hmm. they pulled the photos down. But I was prepared that time. I launched a censored by a scad blog. Uh Uh-oh, like, sorry, that was anonymous. Just kidding. It wasn't me. Um, (laughs) Really? No. It's actually like a couple people that I mean they're they're they've notoriously sort of censored work in the past. So I was prepared for it when it happened the second time and we kind of stormed the open studios with a bunch of flyers leading back to this censored by SCAD website. And the goal was to show the work that was censored because I wasn't the only one, but okay. a lot of people were afraid Were to- there other kinds of work? Yeah, uh, there was like a painting of, I think, a guy in the military reaching his hands down his pants. And that was a painting that was taken out. People have done like critical work of Paula Wallace, who's like, I think, one of the highest paid deans in the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, that stuff's been censored. Curse words are censored, things wow. like that. So, yeah, that was my senior year. And so I was already a hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago was that? Do you mind? Uh, 2000. I graduated in 2011. Oh, OK. Pretty recent. Yeah. 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 So, and I was like out of there the next week I was going to New York. I was like, I don't want (laughs) to, I'm not going to exist in this like conservative space anymore. So yeah, well, let's, we'll swing back to Alabama and the, and the work you're doing there. But as long as we're, we're in the past, what led you to SCAD? Like when did you decide? Oh God. You said graphic design you started? Uh, uh, Printmaking. Printmaking. Initially. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Poor decisions and no financial guidance um, (laughs) from my family because I was the first woman to graduate from college. Do you have siblings? I have a half brother and half sister. So, Mm -hmm. and we're all six years apart. I'm the oldest. So I have a younger brother and who's actually just graduated recently in a sister. Mother's side? Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's how I ended up (laughs) 
here running away from the south <laughs> well so but i'm um, so you're in high school any interest in art any oh interest yeah. In, yeah yeah i mean i was definitely interested in in art and i get mm-hmm. i guess i thought i was going to be into painting or something like that and i was like still of like the generation of like you can be whatever you want to be and i was like <laughs> i want to be an artist but yeah i was into painting i kind of took an interest briefly in fashion design i thought well like you can get a job in fashion and it's still drawing and et cetera, et cetera. And then I like met all the girls and folks over in the fashion, fashion. department. I was like, never mind. <laughs> Let's go in like the Hellraisers over in the printmaking department. So yeah. <laughs> but you were the only one in your family had this kind of interest, right? That yeah. didn't come from parents, didn't come from what what about uh what kind of work did your parents do? And so was your were your mom and dad together this whole time or no, okay. I've um I've never met my dad in person, oh, okay. uh, but I have spoken with him on the phone, and oh. he's even more southern than the rest of my family. He's just kind of interesting. But uh-huh. uh, did he come to Atlanta? Or he? I don't know. He's. I don't know where he is now. Meaning, like, um, when you were born, was oh. he there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They they separated when I was a kid, but he mm-hmm. was like a professional criminal, I guess. So oh. there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, so what about your mom? She must have she had to work, I imagine. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So she had worked at uh, State Patrol for a while as a secretary. Like my grandma, and my mom were both secretaries and my mom's still a legal secretary, actually, at um, the attorney general's office. So oh, wow. she works on death row. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. So full yeah. circle. And your, grandma, <laughs> your grandmother helped raise you then? Um, to some degree. I think she, you know, she lives with my mom now. We're, we're very close. She always says she's like my dad to some yeah. degree. <laughs> so oh, okay. a family of women, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So then, all right. So then you... Um, you go to SCAD, you think fashion, no fashion, then printmaking. Yeah. And then I get it censored doing the male nudes. And then right. I decide to, you know, by the time that, by the time the censorship stuff started happening and the, the article came out, or well, I'm sorry, the blog was posted and then media kind of got involved. Some of the local media started calling the school yeah. and the administrators wanted to shut it down pretty quickly. And again, it wasn't just me involved with that, but they definitely tried to kind of strong arm me into taking it down. And I just, you know, maintained that it was anonymous. And so by the se- my senior year, I mean, it, we were almost in like legal territory. So I decided to just dive into why I was doing the male nudes and defend that. And so I started looking at uh, the women in my family and my great grandmother was still alive, lived in Selma, Alabama. And she was like 92 or 93 when I started shooting. Um, and it was my senior thesis. And like, that's actually the body of work that I think has really carried me into the photojournalism world. Um, and it's still something I'm working on, but it started with my great grandmother and she was in her nineties living in Selma, had lived there throughout the civil rights movement. And she had grown up, or she had raised my grandmother and like a, her husband was extremely abusive and violent. They had these like backwoods Alabama stories, which if you're from the South, you're like used to that. But if you're from the North, you're like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I decided to start photographing her and interviewing her about you know her, ex- her ex-husband and get some of those stories. And then of course, like while I'm interviewing her about domestic violence, she kind of starts coming out with all of these other stories concerning our family. So it was just, you know, she had lived there throughout the civil rights movement and she was talking about her husband burning her clothes in a fire, like getting angry and burning her clothes. And she was like, well, I, you know, he burned my work clothes. I was like, well, where were you working? She was like the Greyhound bus station. Like, 
oh, really? Yeah. And like, did you know some black woman wouldn't get up one time? Oh, and wow. it was really something then. And I was like, are you talking about Rosa Parks? <laughs> and she was like, I don't remember what her name was, but it was really something that, and you know, it was just like wow. Pandora's box. Like sh- she like watched MLK march over the Edmund Pettus bridge, sitting on the car with her grandson. And, but I guess that ultimately the story unfolded in that when I came in to start, you know, kind of get this backstory on her and just, you know, I, di- I knew I didn't have much longer with her, but she had also raised five generations under one roof because of like the, I guess the generational drug abuse and violence and poverty uh, sort of put her in the position of raising five generations. So when I came in, she, her grandson was living there who was like at that time in his 40s. And, you know, his mom, his dad abandoned him with his mom who was like a drunk and mm-hmm. would leave town or whatever. So my gra- great grandma raised him and then he had a daughter and her mom abandoned <laughs> her with him. And so he was like, you know, a drunk, a drug addict. So granny stepped in and raised her. And then she had a daughter. So at that point, they were all living on the property together. So it kind of just became this bigger story of, I mean, really rural America. And and that is the sort of the that's the underlying uh, idea of the project that you're doing. Right. Looking at basically the intersection of of class and and racism in America and how, you know, they sort of operate together and historically what's happened leading up to this moment. And especially now, you know, it's something I've worked on for a long time and was not really much of a surprise to me when Donald Trump won the election. And of course, like, I think probably my entire family voted for him, but right. but also like why how did we get here and and even realizing how sort of blindsided and I work in media, but even realizing how blindsided people in media were, New Yorkers, like my liberal friends here were just like, oh, I mean, how did we like what I was like, you the, need to get your head the out of the liberal sand. bubble. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Is did you say this is all on your mother's side? Your great grandmother and yeah. and, and this okay right yeah like we haven't even started on dad's side I'm sure that'll be <laughs> a have, whole. Have you ever done a DNA test? Have you done? I haven't. Uh-huh. I don't want somebody to recreate me later. <laughs> I'm like too paranoid <laughs> to get my genes. right to get that <laughs> be connected to some serial killer. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who knows what'll come back to haunt me? Although it is rumored we there's like somewhere in our family black lineage or like there's a black person somewhere. I mean. I think if your family lived in the South long enough and it goes back to possibly having a, being slave owners, there's, yeah, there's a good chance, right? Yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's there somewhere, but like the family is so big and so secretive. Like in the South, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's gossip central, but you protect your own and it's right. very secular in that way. So I don't, you know, you'll hear like offhanded comments, but yeah, who knows? Like, I keep uncovering like new details about my family all the time. <laughs> so nothing like would surprise me. But the um, I see the photos online. Are the are the stories like to come? Like, are you going to connect all the photos and the stories all together as sort of one? Yeah, big? I mean, and right now, you know, some of it's on my website, especially like with my grandma's side. But now I'm like really trying to dive into the generations now and you know my my sister my little sister dated a black guy in the closet for like a year and finally she like asked me what I thought of of interracial you know relationships one wow. day and I was like what and she was like well I can't tell anybody you know and it was just looking at how we have changed or haven't changed how did we get here we're talking about the late 2000s yeah wow yeah. 
That's, yeah. So it's yeah. like, and I think, you know, when I moved to New York, even it was like, I would talk about how segregated Atlanta was and, you know, people would ask why I left. They were like, that's a big change. And it was just sort of like running away from it. But you know, people would be like, what do you mean it's still segregated? I was like, well, there's, I mean, you literally have bars yeah. that are like all white. And then down the street, there's like mm-hmm. all black. And like, you, you know, you see, I guess, like the friction between those communities. But so, I mean, it, you know, New Yorkers would be like, what do you mean it's still segregated? It's like, in fact, like Long Island's the most segregated <laughs> suburb in America. Yeah. Which is, I think, also you know, an important thing to consider as well is like people associate, you know, the South with racism and or poverty, but like, it's really easy to overlook, you know, it in your own, as you step over a body at Union Square, like, you know, it's easy to overlook it in your own backyard, but Absolutely. I mean, nobody north of the Mason-Dixon line should be patting themselves on the back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We didn't solve anything. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, you have that bad experience at SCAD, uh, but you do finish, graduate? Yeah, I did. I did finish. They've actually asked me to come in and do a, a panel discussion at the end of September. I don't know if they did their research. The guy that asked me to come, I was you like, should Does do he? it, right? Oh, I'm doing it. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if they did their research. Like, who knows what I'll say. Thank Thank you for being the inspiration for my career by censoring my artwork. Right. No, um. that, that's, that's a worthy discussion, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But it was then it was soon after that you came to the North, you came to New York? Yeah, yeah. Was, I, I was mean, it with through work or jobs or just... Just absolutely running away. <laughs> like okay. I, the, the week after I graduated, and it had just been such a turbulent, you know, period with my senior year, like getting censored, kind of uncovering family stuff and, you know... Then the expectation, I guess, was like, well, you're going to get a job now. And, you know, I, my grandfather was just horrified. He didn't talk to like, he didn't talk to my mom for a while. He was like, how could you let her go up there by herself as a single woman? Like, you know, and it was just like, okay, this is exactly why I'm leaving. So (laughs) I just did it. I just did it. I actually was applying for grad schools and actually had applied at only three colleges. It was like Cal Arts, Yale and SVA, which thank God I didn't get in because like I definitely did not need the additional student loan debt. It was kind of maybe a mistake to some degree going to a private college. But again, like no one had given me any financial. I was like, yeah, my mom's like, yeah, you just take out the student loan. It's like no problem. And it's really horrible now. So buyer beware. But yeah, so I came up here, had applied to grad schools, had met with Charlie here at SVA. Oh, is, is he still here? Yeah, Charles is here. He wow. might even pop in. Yeah. yeah. He saw the male nudes. Um, uh-huh. He was also shocked that they were censored, but I didn't get into the program. So oh. luckily I didn't because I did, I think, better things for less money. So <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought, you know, I should get a master's degree because then I could at least teach if all else fails. But luckily I just, I started retouching, just got whatever jobs came my way. And I mean, really, there were a lot of retouching positions and they paid relatively well. So I did that for a while before I Where did you live? I was at Myrtle Wyckoff. It was like, oh my God, there were no bars or restaurants like that you would, there were no like hip bars or restaurants (laughs) around there at the time, which is funny now because like we had a three bedroom for like 1800, which now I'm sure it's that same place is probably like three or $4,000 at least. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I moved in with a couple other students that had actually, they were grad students, I think. And um, they had an extra room from from SCAD. Oh, okay. So I moved into their small room like paid rent started retouching I actually nannied for a little while Mm. someone actually trusted me with their children (laughs) and 
yeah, just kind of did whatever I could to kind of stay afloat. Finally got to the point with retouching where it's like, I'm like going to like beat my brains out. I can't take it anymore. You can only retouch so many t-shirts and jeans <laughs> for feeling like you're going a little crazy. So yeah, I actually just walked out of my retouching job at Jack Threads one day. I was like, I'm done. I moved into a photo studio in Bushwick and it had a psych wall and everything built into it. And the guy that was there before me had been renting it out. And so I actually started renting out the studio. And it to photographers. To photographers. And mm-hmm. like for a while, it was like the number one photo studio on Yelp. It was kind of crazy because wow. it was just my apartment. But it was like such a, I guess, unique space. You had the light and the wall. And yeah. yeah. And like I started getting like actual celebrities coming in. And Questlove came in. Whoa. Um, and it was supplementing my rent so that I could uh-huh. actually afford to stay there and it was how I was paying my rent to a large degree and being there eventually I mean eventually I was there by myself so I've actually been there by myself for almost four years which is kind of crazy but I mean mainly floating myself with that photo studio and Questlove was coming in for a shoot one day and what I was doing was like checking people in either at lunch or in the morning and checking them out like I was doing only half day and full day. So it was like, I was just biking back and forth from the Navy yard constantly. And like one day, like Questlove was coming and I left at lunch and I really hated my job. So I was just like... Still retouching at that point? Yeah, I was retouching and Questlove was on the way, but he came very late. And of course I was just sitting there waiting and I was like, you know what? Like, I don't even want that job anyway. And I I mean, I guess if they fire me, like I can probably (laughs) qualify for unemployment. So I just didn't go back. And then like, I just kind of waltzed into work the next day. Like my boss was like, did you just leave yesterday? I was like, yeah, I did. And he was like, uh, you just don't care. I was like, no, I don't. He was like, well, I'm going to have to fire. He was like, please, please do. And that was it. I haven't had a staff job since. (laughs) It really launched my freelance career. I was like, if I spent as much time Uh working on my own stuff as I do working at this desk, I could probably make just about anything happen. So goodbye. (laughs) But, uh, so you just sat in on the Quest Love shoot. You weren't shooting. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And like I ended up becoming good friends with that photographer and he did a couple shoots there. I'm not really operating the studio anymore. We, you know, law, law, legal battles. Mm-hmm. You realize what's okay, what's not. So I'm not really doing that anymore as much. But um, yes, for the purposes of the show, you're not shooting commercially in your apartment anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, you know, there needs to be like a, like a SCAD legal disclaimer. That's right. (laughs) The opinions expressed in this podcast are (laughs) don't (laughs) hello my scad recruiter friends. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They're like we need to take her off of that panel (laughs) and fast. The scad comes to my program every year to recruit students. I I teach at a college. Well, they had a they sued SVA. SVA tried to. What? It's on my censored by scad dot blogspot. If you go on there, I pulled archives the SCAD's turbulent 90s and SVA had tried to open a campus there and they kind of sued them under the same laws of like interfering with their ability to do business or something so there's actually that's why there are hardly any like art schools there's nobody else around there yeah they they sue or like buy anybody that comes around and I know that they got into a lawsuit with SVA so wow so there you go yeah so uh when do you start then shooting Getting assignments or or doing documentary work that gets uh, picked up? So, I mean, a couple interesting things happened. First of all, when I was coming up to New York and I was still in my senior year and I was looking at grad schools 
And I hadn't really traveled a lot outside of Atlanta. When I was in printmaking, I did SGC, I think once in Philly and once in Chicago. So those were the only places I had ever been and it was with my senior class. So, and then while I was up here on one of those trips, I just have like, I just tend to be like kind of a lucky person and I'm usually not too afraid to just approach people. So that's probably been a key to my success is like not being afraid to just look up somebody's <laughs> website, email them directly, call them. Hey, what's up? Let's meet like whatever. But it's not just luck. You're also not afraid to say goodbye. You're yeah, also yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So but like it was really insane. Like I, I, I had come up here to assist a photographer who was older than me and I thought I could, you know, do the grad school like meetings. I met Charles and got really excited about New York. It was different than anything, but like this guy ended up being a creep and oh. I ended up like pretty much dodging him after like the second day. And I had met like a group of actors that would hang out at this one bar and they turns out were like, they were house sitting for Gerald Daycock. I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name, but he was out of town and he was the editor, I think at Vogue or fashion stylist for Vogue, but he lived in like one of the penthouse units at the Chelsea hotel. So the rest of the trip I did of like staying at the Chelsea hotel in this like really bizarre, I think like the Selby did like a portrait series of, of that in that unit of Gerald. So, I mean, it was just really a bizarre thing. I kind of walked into like this group of actors. It was unlike, you know, anything I'd ever seen. Everybody was so confident. Everybody had something they were working on. And I was like, this is, this is where I'm coming. And, um, and that same trip, I was, I was running a little photo developing another legal disclaimer. I was like, <laughs> I was developing film <laughs> at the, at the SCAD darkroom for like photographers that wanted black and white film developed, but didn't trust the main photo lab. So I was developing black and white film. And one of the photographers was like, you should meet one of my friends, actually Lara. And she goes to SVA. She's around your age. And like that same trip, I ended up meeting August Adams, like the son of Eddie Adams. So when I came back to New York, I ended up reaching back out. Everybody was like, you got to go check out this like Eddie Adams workshop farm thing upstate. And I was like, oh, okay. And so when I came back to New York, I had hung out with him a couple times and ended up coming and volunteering for the workshop and became really good friends with August. And that family was like really lovely to me and ended up coming actually kind of went backwards a little bit, ended up coming as like a friend and then a black team volunteer at the workshop and actually applied for three years before I finally got in as a student Oh wow! and ended up going as a student there. And that was sort of like the break into New York Times and getting assignment work. You know, I had been editing freelance for Getty after the retouching thing ended. That's that was also like how I transitioned was the New York office near Canal. Yeah. 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 So Getty Entertainment was photo editing and like same thing. Like, how long am I going to do this before? Like, I want to shoot. And they didn't really like the transition between (laughs) shooting and editing. So I just had to like walk away from it at some point. But, you know, it's like when you create space, it's usually new things come in. So, yeah, I've been, you know, I guess lucky in that regard as well. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's like, I don't know, like everybody's always like trying to figure out like, what am I going to do to get work and survive? And Mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, if you're smart and you want to survive, like you're going to figure it out. So I've never been of like, hey, save, you know, however much money and move to New York. It's like, if you're going to do it, just jump in, just (laughs) jump in. And if it doesn't work, you leave. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And was the, uh, the Alabama work, the work that got you into the Eddie Adams workshop? No, it's kind of funny. Like I spent, I had applied, I did a lot of like 
music shows like I feel like that's usually like one of the first things you do you're like I want to shoot musicians you're like oh yeah this doesn't pay so you do that for free for a little (laughs) while before you realize that's not a sustainable option Mm -hmm. so I did that like shot CMJ a couple of years and I I mean mostly when I was applying all I had was like music and some of my family's stuff which was actually shot on film so not really of that photojournalism aesthetic for the moment but and the year it was my third year applying and I went to Nepal, was there for a month, was actually there during, I have like a really, I don't know if it's like some sort of centrifugal force or whatever <laughs> that I have, but for some reason, like natural disasters follow me. <laughs> so I was working in Nepal. I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. Like when I lived in Atlanta, the tornado hit my uh-huh. building. And then when I was in Nepal, like there was an avalanche. It was the largest avalanche at the time while I was going up to Everest Base Camp. And I so I was there for a month and shot a Porter documentary with a filmmaker. And I shot a photo alongside that. Supporters so are are the people who basically on their backs carry things from one location to another. They do del- right, right, and- right. And yeah, because it's a protected you know national forest or park, it everything has to be taken from the bottom to the top by foot. Like you can't kill animals or anything like that. So any goods, any even trash, like has to go down on foot. But yeah, so I was there for a month and shot that, and then went back to Alabama, shot some more there and that was the portfolio that got me in but it was funny because when I was put together putting together my portfolio I never really included more than a couple photos of my family stuff because I just didn't think it was important and Jim Estrin um, who started the lens blog from New York Times was I you know I, I didn't have a meeting set up with him and I sort of hung around to like 1 30 a.m at 11 30 club I was like please look at my stuff <laughs> and he kind of looked at it and five photos in he was like what what is this I was like this is my family in Alabama and he was like what and he was like okay we need to talk about this do you live in New York come to my office next week this is gonna take some time and like for sure we it was like probably an hour meeting and he was just like this isn't a story right now, but it's going to be. So keep shooting it. And that was almost four years ago at this point. So three or four years ago. So yeah, I mean, it was just like, oh, I didn't realize this was like an important thing. Like I thought it was just like my family in Alabama. (laughs) Like I, who cares? It's like, uh, hold that thought. (laughs) So when you were a, a photo major, did you, were there photographers that, that inspired you or photographers that you got interested in? And, and I bring that up because, you know, you, you didn't really kind of appreciate how, what other people might think of your family work, right? Right, right. I mean, at the time, and again, it's like I was shooting that work on the side, but I mean, I was really into Maplethorpe at the time. And even when I was at the Chelsea Hotel when I moved to New York, I was like, oh my God, like Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe <laughs> are here. This is so cool. But yeah, I mean, mostly like the Hellraisers <laughs> people. Uh, I mean, I really liked Sally Mann and I, you know, again, like another controversial f- figure, but mm-hmm. yeah, Margaret Burkwhite is another one, I guess in the photojournalism ra- realm that, you know, I like strong female photographers. But, but the, the work you thought was more, was going to be more interesting was was work that you thought where you were going to push things a little harder. Right, right. And that this family work was like, yeah, traditional documentary, right? right. No big deal. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, that makes sense. It took, yeah. a, it took you know, until a northerner tells us that it's important, <laughs> it's not important. <laughs> um, a slam so. and a compliment. <laughs> you know, Jim Estrin's amazing. He yeah. really is, so... <laughs> So of that work, the um, you 
you know, you started talking about it and, and your great grandmother and, and how there's a, a, a good chance that she was really in the middle. I mean, she was in the middle of it and, and it's yeah. sort of the heart of it and everything. Do you know, and I, I don't know how much you want to uh, talk about it or all, um, like where, where was your family kind of in general? Like, were they, were they afraid of what was happening? Were they against what was happening? Were they... Uh, pro- uh, they were on the wrong side of <laughs> okay, history. Let's yeah. just say that. I mean, but I will also say that, you know, they definitely didn't come from a lineage of money. And mm-hmm. this is where I think, you know, the conversation about class really comes into play and classism comes into play because, you know, they were tenant farmers. They were railroad tenants. And, you know, my grandfather was in the union and was a steel worker. So I think that when you start to trace back, or I don't think, I know, if you start to trace back that history, uh, you can kind of start to understand how these things have come to fruition, how history has repeated itself, how things have changed or haven't changed. But, you know, there's always context to every to every story, every place and community. So really trying to understand why my family feels the way they feel and why they think the way they think. No, it's right. I mean... Just take unions alone. We think of them as this sort of great progressive idea, right? This, right. this bastion of progress. They didn't take African Americans into the union, right. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I've studied a lot of it, but you know, it's like there are lectures you could look up on Tim Wise, for instance, and he wrote a book called White Like Me, and he does a lot of academic lectures about this specific topic. But if you really trace back the history and even colonialism in America, you know, you had poor whites and blacks. And so by sheer numbers, they were able to stand up to the elite and the people that were in power. But the way that they maintained that and sort of silenced them was to give poor whites and that's even like where the terminology white comes from before Mm -hmm. that you were you know irish polish german or whatever you were you weren't white so it's kind of just like a diluted terminology in and of itself but you know he talks about how they gave poor whites slave patrol so essentially empowering them and that's is this kind of false sense of empowerment in a way like we're not going to give you money we're not going to give you a slice of the pie but we are going to like we're going to make you better somehow right right like at least you're not so you're not identifying with people you should be identifying with right like at least you're not black at least you're not of color like you know so and it and i think that it, it continues you know over time it's like you still see that today and especially in the south and tenant farmers like poor whites also never really had money didn't necessarily have property so you know when they see immigrants moving in and this and that like it I mean that mentality really traces back to our history and I don't know if there's ever been any other mentality in America like that's who we are so I think you know we focus on racism quite a bit without really understanding the history and context which to some degree is not our fault. Like for sure, history books have not gone into that. And this is why. So that power structure still maintains. Yeah. And the, and the photographs that you're making, they, I mean, they, they're very documentary, straightforward photographs of, of your family. And by the way, they're beautifully made in in terms of uh, color and everything else. And um, and the emotional sort of bonds that you, you see with people, but they, they have that underlining tone of there's, you know, trouble. There's, you know, there's sadness and there's there's grief and there's a sense of loss and even a, a 
even in the familial sort of settings, a, a sense of disconnect sometimes. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what, what it looks like it's shaping up is you're, you're presenting this, this American family with this history and then, you know, trying to give people an insight into how and why people can be the way they are. Is, is right. that... Seem yeah, and I mean, yeah. and a, a large part of that is like now moving on to other family members and moving towards video, actually. But you know, none of that will be on the website for a while. But yeah, now I'm kind of pushing into video and really starting to talk to you know somebody like my grandfather, who <laughs> <laughs> like you don't sit next to grandpa at the football games. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, even talking to somebody like him, and he's very intelligent. But he was a middle school dropout. I mean, he can build a house. He's extremely intelligent, but he's not educated in the in the in the academic sense. So, you know, and even looking at my family in Selma, like there is no hope to some degree. Like, yes, you could go get a job and work at McDonald's like seven days a week and like still not be able to pay the rent. So like, you know, you end up I mean, a lot of my family already had kids by the time they graduated high school. So, and you see it everywhere. It's not just my family. Like that's kind of how it is down there. (laughs) And you know, what motivates people? Like when you're looking at a community that is disconnected and segregated and not really mobilizing in a positive direction, you, you, and you, and it's happening everywhere in rural communities, you know, population loss, everybody's moving to the city and like who's left behind and like who takes the time to like consider that? Well, no one. So, you know, I think for sure leading up to the election, that's a lot of what we're seeing is like, oh yeah, the other part of the country, which is the rest of it uh, outside of metropolitan areas. But I mean, really looking at, I mean, what would I do if I was in Alabama? Like I would probably have a bunch of kids. I would probably be sitting in my house, like smoking meth. Like I don't know. You almost can start to see why things are the way they are Mm -hmm. and how these mentalities. And again, like somebody without a high school level education and even with a high school level education there like might be a middle school education in New York City so you know really understanding like yeah you can't just like group them all in it's just like this mass of people that these racists like idiots it's like well there's a reason that things are the way they are right like there's a reason you know even within like housing projects or whatever like how did people get here like you can get mad at the crime and the violence but you know to a large extent we can now understand how and why that's happened and it's kind of similar in that sense where it's like you know it doesn't make it right it doesn't justify it but like it for sure has a context and a history that goes along with it so yeah and those those questions uh have been around for a long time now i mean you know where where do you ins- where's the intervention like when do you like how do you break those cycles right? um grassroots like you mm-hmm. know something i've been working on now i have an instagram i launched um and i don't know if you're familiar with the everyday project so yeah i just i just i saw that through i think your instagram yeah you yeah have, yeah right because I, I, it's like I hardly post on mine. I'm like always trying right. to curate this Everyday Rural America, but follow Everyday Rural America right. on Instagram. <laughs> but it's an everyday project. Contributing photographers, right? Yeah. I mean, I, what I've started to do is basically find photographers that are working in rural areas and people use the hashtag and I will share from that hashtag occasionally. But really looking for the photographers that are working in rural areas. You know, I think media the media sphere is very secular and I do start to see and understand like 
the media bias argument they're making because it is constantly like New Yorkers and people from DC like parachuting into some of these communities, you know, be it the Roy Moore campaign or Hurricane Irma that which you also photographed. Right. right. And like I've, you know, worked with a couple reporters on assignments there that are like, I've never been to Alabama. Like, wow. I was like, yeah, you know. Isn't and, this exotic? Yes. Yeah. And he's like, you know, one guy's from Canada and he had like an accent. He's like wearing like khakis and, you know, nice shoes. And, and these he, he was like, the people at the hotel bar were like, are you part of that fake news media? I was like, but look at you. Like, you know, I mean. That's the best response. But look at you. <laughs> Like, know your audience. Um, Do a little research before you land. Okay? <laughs> that's right. I have like a camo hat I like to wear that I'm pretty sure like I'm Brooklyn friends would be like, what are you doing? It's like, put on an American flag, put a Bible in the windshield of the car and let's do this. But yeah, roll tide, just roll tide everything. And everything with roll tide, you'll win your way into any Alabamian's art. So yeah, I mean... And so I started looking for the photographers on Everyday Rural America that are working in those areas. And essentially, I mean, down the line, I'd like to kind of have and I have had editors reach out and like, hey, didn't you have somebody in rural like Arkansas or Illinois? Like, yeah, I do. And they're great photographers. It is just they're not, you know on the radar of editors that are working out of New York and DC. So so is this a site now where people are getting noticed for work? Um, I mean, actually, even though the account doesn't have a ton of followers, I mean, editors from pretty much every major publication mm-hmm. follow it. And I mean, yeah, pretty much all the editors I work with follow it. So it has a big following in the photo community, although yeah. not a ton of followers. It's, Their new algorithm is crazy. It's I don't the know same how. with this podcast, by the way. They changed the algorithm. I mean, so Everyday yeah. Projects, Peter and Austin started Everyday Africa, and that's, I think, probably the biggest account. And now there's Everyday Everywhere. There's Everyday Bronx, Everyday American Muslim. So, and those accounts have a lot of followers Mm. uh, and uh, most of them have been around for at least a a couple of years. And like sometime last year, they like changed the algorithm like around, like right before I started this account. And I'm just like, I don't even know. (laughs) And and Peter and Austin are like, yeah, they've changed the algorithm. Like we have no answer because before it was like suggested accounts. So if you followed one, you essentially Mm -hmm. ended up following all of them. But now it's not that way. So yeah. So but this, I mean, uh, the everyday rural America, which I followed. (laughs) (laughs) Plus one. That's right. (laughs) Please follow back. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Follow for follow. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And so there are these, you know, they're not even like essays. They're just these sort of like, um, this is what I'm doing. Here's an interesting little, uh, you know, this this sort of slice of life kind of like, this is happening here, and then this is happening here, and this is what I'm working on here, right? Right, right. And again, like, you know, the media hasn't been very attentive to a lot of these areas. And, you know, to be clear, there's not really a national print publication operating, you know, nationally or internationally out of the whole Southeast region. So whatever gets picked up, you know, from New York Times or like national outlets, it's very limited. And it's usually, you know, if something happens or like some tragedy or like, you know, some freak show like Roy Moore, sorry, <laughs> uh, uh, unbiased, uh, right. legal disclaimer, legal <laughs> does not represent the opinions of, but, you know, I think we could safely say that this podcast is on board with Roy Moore <laughs> being a freak show. Yes. <laughs> Can we all just finally agree That's right. Can we have on some? Roy Moore being? Some baseline of decency. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I actually got in trouble for that, by the way, like posting on social media about 
Roy Moore. Posting like, yeah, opinions. Like I was like, he's really? a sexual predator. And it was like, while I was shooting, it was like, you can't have that opinion. Um, oh, from like editors or from? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, so, I can see that point. Yeah. I mean, when you're in the documentary world, especially yeah. in the photo, let's just say the photojournalism world, you do have to keep your biases to yourself. Right. Yeah. And it's hard because like, I'm very outspoken. And mm -hmm. also, I didn't come from the photojournalism you or journalism take that track. background. Right, so it's right. like, only when I get like slapped on the hand do I like learn. <laughs> right. It's like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> press credentials, press credentials, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was a learning experience, but it's hard to, to like not have an opinion. And also I'm kind of like in the middle of the fire store to some degree where it's like, you know, I have this unique perspective of being in the middle and feeling like it's important to talk about these things while, you know, having to be very cautious about how I talk about them. Right. Minus all the curse words. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do I think and, 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 and like where do we go from here? I mean, something I'm working on with the everyday projects and Report for America is like another Teach for America launched Report for America and they're trying to get journalists in local newsrooms and basically trying to save local journalism to some degree. I mean, it's like what, fifty percent or somewhere around there of local newsrooms have shut down in like the last ten years. So, you know, what happens when not only is education struggling, but now we also have no access to media. And even traveling through Alabama, I've just, you know, there's so many things to cover and so many issues. I just came back from Flint, Michigan, and we talk about you know, the Flint water crisis, but water is becoming a problem all over the country. And people, you know, but we talk about Flint over and over again, and it's like, this isn't a Flint problem. Like, this is an American problem. And, and even like with the natural disasters or... Mm -hmm. ProPublica just pu published like a bombs in our backyard data report that maps out all of the military bases that had private contractors, you know, dumping really toxic stuff for years and years and just have walked away from it. And it's like billions and billions of dollars of cleanup efforts. But inevitably, especially like with the EPA as it stands, like that's not going to happen. So right. who's tested that water? Like who's reporting or like investigating that? And the answer is probably next to no one. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Northeast Jersey, we just accept the fact that we live on chromium wastelands like that we accept yeah. the fact that if you put uh cement and sand over an area and build a park or a golf course everything is fine right, right? and so i mean in regards to like what i'm moving towards now is really hoping to get um student media into local or rural schools that you know teaching media literacy getting them to look at their own local news, if it exists at all, getting them to look at different types of news and thinking critically about their communities. Like, how does this impact me? Like, how does some of these stories, you know, and again, it's like you, for them, a lot of people in rural areas and especially kids have next to no access to mm -hmm. media. And it's like, pretty much the only thing they're watching is some, whatever Sinclair Broadcasting is putting out on like the local station because, if I have something running in the New York Times and I'm in Alabama, like I know if I want to get a copy of it, I'm going to have to drive to like Auburn University. Yeah. Like that is it. Like there is nowhere around Selma I'm going to be able to, to grab that. So, you know, getting just getting back to the, the Flint water and the way that was reported. Right. I mean, that talking about it just in terms of Flint also 
is a way of saying, well, that's those are poor people. Those are poor African American people. That's right. that's that's a whole nother. That's a world I'm not a part of. That's a, a crisis that can't happen to me. Right. And then you you compare it to the way the California drought was covered, and it was. Can we still have almond milk? Uh, should I have a lawn or a rock garden in front of my house, right? right. I mean, there, there was such a different way of talking about these crises that is so connected to class. Right. And so, I mean, I'm really interested in having, you know, a centralized platform for students to report across different states on their own communities and in topics that interest them, but, you know, getting them to ask the questions about their community, understand how these things do make a difference, how these things do impact their communities. And to a large extent, you know, a lot of stuff is yet to be uncovered and who better to do it than the local communities. And I think even getting back to like the media bias discussion, I think it's important to have locals or to some degree people that understand that history and context and community very well reporting on those communities. And they're is oftentimes like outsiders coming in to report and may not understand or may not be familiar with the history there, there, the community there. So, And even if there's this sort of grassroots community journalism, even if someone comes in, they can at least talk to them, right? Right, right. And so what I'm hoping to do is, you know, kind of build out the student network and get students creating their own media, whether it's student newspaper or hopefully existing on a centralized platform so students can see what other students are reporting on. You know, even if like the Parkland shooting had there been like a centralized student media platform that was national that, you know, how quickly, you know, that discussion could have been had across state lines. Because even in, you know, it's it's very isolating and media is so secular now. So I think the the only way to change it, you know, as we've seen even in politics is like really getting back on the ground. And right now media very much works from the top down. And I think the best way to approach it moving forward is probably from the bottom up. And hopefully, you know, and the best way to do that is with kids who are going to be growing up in these communities and facing some of the challenges. So, so what... What form is this taking? Like, how are you reaching it's, out? We're, so we're, Who's I mean, we? it, <laughs> um, we're still kind of building it out. I mean, I'm really interested in this centralized platform. The Everyday Projects does have uh, an educational curriculum and it's on their website as well. Um, and that's pretty much getting kids to build their own or not even kids necessarily. So, so Everyday Projects is an organization that did you help start? No. Um, oh, okay. There's just like the Everyday Project. So it started with Peter DeCampo and Austin Merrill, and they launched Everyday Africa. They were both Peace Corps members in oh, Kenya. Okay. And, you know, they realized how Africa was portrayed. And so they kind of started this educational art. They started the account to basically challenge stereotypes and also finding other photographers working in Africa to contribute to it. So they're representing their own communities. So the educational program as it stands right now on the website is, you know, getting kids building their own social media. So their own everyday project. And, you know, opening up with, you know, what stereotypes do you have about your own community or do other people have about your community? And in Flint, you know, we just came back from doing a one week program there. And that's exactly what we asked. Like, what do you think people think of Flint? And well, water and crime, Mm -hmm. period, you know, and it's like and they open up like some of the discussion, even with everyday Africa. Like, what do you think of Africa? Well, zebras, poverty, heat. 
you know, and starving children. Right. right yeah. Right. So it's like really getting kids to think about how they're being portrayed and and how what do they see about Flint? Like what's important to them and this community? So, you know, I think that if done well and if a format can work for different schools in different areas, like I hope that it can build out some sort of student platform and community that can kind of connect them and build a network beyond just social media. Like in the in the vein of social media, but yeah. At the same time, like taking it out of that sphere and making it something progressive and grassroots. Yeah. So are you uh, reaching out then to other communities right now? Are you yeah. traveling anywhere soon? Yeah. There's actually one going on in Brooklyn right now uh, for the Everyday Projects. But um, I'm looking into actually doing one in Selma. I know there's like the Selma Center for Truth, Nonviolence, and Reconciliation there. And... I'm hoping to work with them and get uh, some of the students doing a six to eight week program. They have, I think New Orleans has pretty much adopted that program into their art program. So, you know, it's operating differently in different areas, but I'm really hoping to like tap into the rural areas that really are struggling um, to maintain media <laughs> existence and access. So yeah, I think, you know, Selma is a place I would like to start. It's still very segregated. They are you know, and, and it, they have this historical element, which we're all familiar with, but getting them to really understand why things are the way they are and getting them even asking the tough questions. Cause you know, it's like, even in Flint, we started talking about, you know, they have the gubernatorial race going on and they were like, what does that mean? And like, you know, it was like, well, there was a debate here last week, like how interesting to have kids asking those questions, you know, <laughs> to oh, politicians yeah. like, yeah, yeah. well, you know, I'm reporting for my student newspaper, like, you know, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Is it, so are you all going through student organizations then? Is that yeah, how? Yeah, it's, it's, we're still kind of like ironing everything out. There's all kinds of issues that brings up too then, right? Yeah. Because then they are under the loci parentis, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, yeah. of the institution, which mm -hmm. normally is really just looking for kind of a good PR rag, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it'll play out in different ways. And like, I'm sure there will be a lot of trial and error with, with what will be able to do versus mm -hmm. what we want to do. But, um, right. you know, I think just giving kids the tools they need to even think critically and have media literacy in and of itself is like a valuable thing for the communities to, to embody. So, cause right now, I mean, we're really in a, in a tough spot. I mean, in media in general, you know, everything's going freelance. It's condensing, condensing, mm -hmm. closing. But I think, you know, it's still important for kids to yeah. understand why it's important and also understand, like, how to read news and how to think critically yeah. about news, but also, like, their communities and how they're represented. What, uh, when you say kids, what age range are we talking about? Uh, I mean, the way that it's existed in the past has been middle school, high school. I think, I think that it would be, you know, I would like to see it be focused on high school students because I think, you know, they are of the age that they can, you know, start thinking critically and, and get more involved in some of these bigger topics. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So when when did you go to Nepal again? You, you mentioned it briefly, then we got off and, and I want yeah, to come back I to it. Yeah, I was there in maybe 2014. Mm -hmm. And I actually... And what brought you there? Uh, there was a, a, a film guy that was shooting a piece there on the porters on yeah well actually he was going to initially do it on sherpa but then i was going to ask you the difference between the sherpas so and the porters a, sh a sherpa is actually like an, an ethnic group and 
so people use, use the ter- terms interchangeably, but really Sherpa's like an ethnic group versus like a porter, which is the position. So. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, 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 was a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And we did shoot a short piece on that. And then, you know, I was taking photos alongside that. That same year I had gone to Israel and West Bank. What My, year were you in the West Bank then? Oh, I the same year you said, 2014? Yeah, I think it was like, it was right at the end. It was like December going to January. I think it was the end of 2013. And then 2014, I think, is when I went to Nepal. So I was just like shooting as much as I could. I thought I had to like go out there and like do something dangerous to like get good photos, which it turns out like no one likes those <laughs> photos. And I was like, please go back to Alabama. <laughs> oh, you talking about the West Bank photos? Yeah, I don't even think I have any of it online, but it was like yeah. I went to West Bank, like my boyfriend at the time was Israeli and I know he thought I was insane. He was like, that's fine. If you're going there, I can't save you. Good luck. <laughs> and like, it was kind of, it was kind of a shit show, but I was like, I want to photograph the protest uh, along the the wall. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and it's funny. Like uh, John White who's a photographer that worked in Chicago. Um, he's very well known. I think he got a Pulitzer. Was it, He's a speaker at the workshop every year. And I was on the tr- transportation team and I was driving him back to the hotel in one of the cars and he we were talking about my family story and, you know, he's African-American and he was like, you know, this is your story. You have to do it. The things closest you know, to us are sometimes the best stories that we have. And like, this is, and this is your assignment. Like yeah. this is God's assignment. It's like, you know, to some degree that resonates and that looking back on going to West Bank, like that's like, I had kind of no business being there and I understand like media works, not to say it, it can't be done, but it was like, you know, I w- wanted to get in the guts of the story, but at the same time, like, didn't really understand what I was doing. So it wasn't my story. And again, like, there are people that are from there that are familiar, that have lived it, that know it, and know the communities that are, you know, the ones that are probably best fit to report on it. Right. And so then you're, you end up in Nepal, working alongside the documentary filmmaker, and yeah. then you, you do your own work on the, the porters. Yeah. Right. Okay. And but, but so there was no um, there was no commission that was just on your own doing that. Yeah. Yeah. For the yeah. most part, like he had, you know, he had places to stay, some room and board, but it was more or less like on my own dime. Was this the Israeli boyfriend doing the documentary? No. Room? Oh, this was someone no. else. Okay. Yeah, okay. someone else. And then when do you go to when when do you go to Jamaica? Oh, uh, so I, when I was still retouching. Oh, so that's early work. Yeah. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was another reason I was kind of just done with that job because I used up all my vacation days Mm -hmm. shooting stuff. So I I met a couple of filmmakers that were like working on this series. It was like the soccer traveler. They were trying to do like an Anthony Bourdain, but in with soccer. So it was like experiencing community and culture through soccer because it's an international sport. And it was during the World Cup qualifiers. This is out of many one, right? The documentary. And so it's part of the the travel soccer traveler. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that video clips on the website, but Mm -hmm. they were shooting leading up to or the World Cup qualifiers leading up to World Cup that year. And so they after that, they went to Honduras and they were like, you should come out to all these other places. Like, I have no more vacation days left. So I went out there and shot that with them and had some photo work from that. And it like, I should have just walked out of my job then because those guys have like two <laughs> massive production sh- studios now and are making a lot of money doing what they love. I'm like, mm-hmm. should have walked out of that retouching <laughs> job sooner. <laughs> but yeah. But you, you also, you shot something, uh, I think for the New York Times on the, uh, basically the demise of the Big Apple Circus. 
Oh, right, yeah. right before it went under, probably, right? Yeah. And that, it's a little near and dear to my heart. When I, was, when I thought I would, wanted to be a photojournalist, I was studying, actually studying photojournalism here at a school of visual arts. Oh. One of, one of my uh, first assignments that I got from Ed Hart, the former photo editor for UPI. That's, oh, how, wow. that's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Came in over the wire, and uh, he sent me to Lenox Hill Hospital, where the Big Apple Circus clowns were entertaining children. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so yeah. Cool. It was like, one of the first things I ever shot. Like, I think it got yeah. picked back up now that the circus is back. Isn't is it? it? I, I don't even know. So. Oh, all right. <laughs> I think it. I think it's back around, maybe in Manhattan or so. I don't know. Yeah, and so you, you've shot quite a bit for Bloomberg and the New York Times, yeah. and, it, and you do corporate work like real commercial work as well yeah, right yeah um is and that's that just kind of your bread and butter right now the corporate work or? i mean yeah that's where the money is unfortunately but uh, uh, there's no shame in that <laughs> yeah i mean it's like luckily like the times you know they started paying more but it's still i mean mm-hmm. when i was shooting you know a few years ago I, I think one of the first places i started shooting i was picking up times assignments here and there but you know it was like if I got called in once a month I was like oh my god they're calling but and then daily news at the same time and it was like all the day rates were around like two two fifty it was like Is okay that- and then like one commercial shoot pays for like yeah right for like 10 assignments so <laughs> well I didn't even know what day rates were anymore is that what they are 250 they I think it was last year they went up to 450. All right. I don't know if I'm allowed to discuss that, but it was like, well, no, I mean, they announced it. It was like a big deal yeah. for like the industry because, you know, it was hard to continue shootings like after yeah. taxes, like what is going on? And my professor and that I would run into like back in Atlanta was like, uh-huh. that's what they paid when I was there in the 80s that's like, right. or 90s. No, I was like, I think I used to get a hundred dollars a photo because I was I was just like coming in off the street and like yeah. to be AP or UPI or, yeah. or Daily News and that, yeah. I think that's well what, now you don't get paid for the photo that you wear they just right. like give you the day rate <laughs> and, and they keep your film or yeah no? okay. they, I mean it depends on who it is but like <laughs> your film for sure the, your film <laughs> <laughs> and they remember that what, when I was getting out of the business, that was the thing they would um, give you. They would want to give you the hundred bucks, which they used to give you per photo, but then they would want your whole roll of film and just yeah. keep it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's why like Getty and like Reuters. Like I will not with Reuters. Mm-hmm. No, like I'm not afraid to say that I will not <laughs> shoot for Reuters because they. <laughs> I mean, the contract when I came in. And I was shooting a, it was Hurricane Matthew. I had not worked for Reuters before. And I was like, I'm in an area no one's in. Um, and I know Getty was like a tough nut to crack. And mm-hmm. I also knew that their contract was pretty horrible. So I was like, uh, maybe Reuters. And, you know, I knew people that had worked for Reuters and what they were getting paid. And they were on the old contract. But, oh, um, okay. And they had just ha- like rolled out this new contract. And so I was already shooting. And then the editor sent me the contract after I like sweet talked like some helicopter pilot into like taking me aerial um free of charge like meanwhile like down wow, that's the ri- an expensive gig yeah like yeah. meanwhile down the like river you know reuters was like trying to like all right we'll we'll allow you know aerial or a helicopter rental but you know this is going to be the only aerial footage I was like i got aerial footage <laughs> like oh by the way what is that contract because i was you know like can i send outtakes like what are, you know what what's what's the contract send the contract over because i had already gotten up in this helicopter and i was like i have something you that you want now um <laughs> that anybody wants now so who's gonna pay what but yeah they sent over the contract it was like we own your outtakes, everything. Uh, I was like, outtakes? Like, are you kidding? Like, what if I shoot, you know, anything could happen. And like, you're saying you own not only what you're distributing, which is like pretty typical now for a photo contract, but right. also outtakes. It's like, 
you know, I tried to just like mark through just that. They were like, nope. I was like, what is the day rate? It was like, uh, you know what? I'm my like, I'm out here risking my life and it's worth more than 275 a day and my outtakes that I can <laughs> never use again. That you can't use then, right? Yeah. 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 That the business has not, <laughs> it's has not been great. With the struggle the, yeah. is real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's up next? You're working. So you're working on the, um, Everyday Rural America. Uh, are you the owner of then, that yeah, site? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the are you founder. working with anyone on that or? No, not really okay. at this point. I mean, the Everyday Projects guys, we're, we're talking about, you know, some of these other educational programs and, you know, student so, uh, media. You're seeing that as sort of all one thing, like that, that account and the Everyday Project? And yeah. The, I mean, essentially it is an Everyday Project. Um, okay. So like I've traveled with them and I gave a panel talk with Peter in Seattle mm-hmm. with it was like everyday Bronx everyday American Muslim everyday oh, okay. incarceration so like everybody kind of founded different ca- accounts and you know some are I guess more ongoing than others but but yeah so like it's pretty much just figuring out I think from here how to negate some of the challenges yeah that we're facing in media like I don't know what the long-term strategy is <laughs> like it's looking kind of bleak as you know like daily news just like cleared its oh, photo staff half and, of its staff right yeah. Yeah. Well, the entire yeah, the entire photo staff is gone. Right. Uh. So it's like you know, and that's happening at a lot of places. So I don't yeah. know what, what. Oh my god. That's all right. Sorry. Do you need to oh, get it? No, it's my grandma okay. FaceTiming. Is it? Um, <laughs> if you want to hear some Southern accent, here it goes. <laughs> hey, baby. You want to tell her you're doing a show? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So I don't know. Pretty much just trying to figure out how to work outside of the structure mm-hmm. of how media is existing now. I think is like where I'm heading. It's like either that or just leave media altogether. Because it's like, I don't know what, you know, the retirement yeah. plan is going to be here, but yeah, it's not looking good. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've had Sarah Hilton and Sarah Blessner on, uh, and it'll, though your episode might just follow theirs, but we'll see. Um, or it might just be, um, after another episode, but, um, that's, you know, that's what we always end up uh, talking about, too, is how you break in and then how do you sustain? And, you know, breaking in is is very different than what it used to be, right? It used to be you, if you did some stringing and you got noticed and you get picked up and maybe um, maybe you're a freelancer and then you're a staffer, right? That doesn't happen anymore. Right. <laughs> so it's like it used happen. to make sense to take like the low pay rate yeah. as a freelancer because, hey, like you could be a staffer someday, mm-hmm. right? But now it's just like, uh, nope. like I live in poverty. You, got, you know, like, like uh, all my students, it's all, you got to make your own way. You got to make your own thing yeah I mean and even to some degree it's like it's like you don't want to like tell kids like you you should get into journalism it's like uh it's hard yeah and like now journal <laughs> like photojournalism is having it's like me too moment of reckoning or whatever yes, so it's yes. also like including you know, the even Eddie, f- Eddie Adams workshop right mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah for sure um and you know it's like the numbers and you might be familiar the women photograph group but you know they've published Sorry. yes they've yeah, yeah. published the number yeah, on like yeah. a1 like how many are done by females and it's like right Danielle Zalkman puts out the the posts on like so this here's this month's tally right yeah, yeah and yeah. it's like I think like best case is like 23 percent right um and about average is like 15 percent female so it's like right. you're already struggling as like a photojournalist and then you're like really struggling as a female, female. photojournalist and then if you're like a photojournalist a female woman of, of color, color right it is like two percent right, it's right, like right. 
Yeah. So there are like a lot of changes, you know, and I, I think that's why I'm just you know interested in creating the alternative because working within the structure just seems yeah like it's hard to break through mm-hmm. for just about anybody, but it's like not sure what the future is going to look like, you know? No, nobody. I mean, there's no way to know. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way to know. Uh, any uh, future assignments coming up? Traveling somewhere? I am hoping to station myself strategically for the primaries. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. I would like yeah, to yeah. cover in the Southeast leading up to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it depends. Like, I think swing states are a very big foc- focal point. But just getting in and, and following some of that leading up to it. Never know when you're going to have an interesting yeah. character like Roy Moore. <laughs> um, but... Yeah. I think we do know. I think it's going to be every time now. Yeah, now, now, now it's like, yeah, now it's like, oh, a, an actual like white, like Richard Spencer's running for, yeah. for government. Like, awesome. Yes. <laughs> People are no longer fearful of their uh, their awful opinions anymore. Right, right, right exactly. <laughs> their, like, their who knows? Politics. Like, my family might start running. I mean, <laughs> I mean, honestly, and I've thought about it. Like, if I were to leave photojournalism, I think politics would be my next hit because it's just. Really? Yeah. Like, wow. I th- you know, and even... Like city council kind of idea? Or? I mean, maybe. I, I mean, maybe beyond that. I mm-hmm. mean, I think even like in going into like law and politics. Oh, okay. Because um, okay. I'm a fighter and mm-hmm. I'm rambunctious and... I like to debate and uh-huh. I'm good at it. So it's like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm too outspoken for media. I can just go straight into politics <laughs> and take on Roy Moore myself. Yeah. So where, um, where do you, or, or how do you see this, um, this kinfolk, which I don't, I don't know if you even named the documentary work that you're doing with your family. It's called kinfolk, right? Yeah. yeah. Where do you, uh, see that kind of first appearing? Like how, how is that going to, um, published or shown or yeah, that's the big debate I mean what I'm doing now is trying to focus on moving it towards film you know I have a lot of photo footage that down the line I'm sure will be a book of course like there are like the editorial aspect and like I've had a lot of places very interested in that story especially like given the moment and like the access but at the same time it's like you know I I've held it really close because um, I want to see it through and I don't want, you know, it to get out there and like my family get some sort of crazy backlash or like my family just disown me altogether, which is highly possible. So it's like, um, <laughs> have you shown them the work? Do they have a sense of yeah, where it's going? I mean, my family in Selma for sure has seen the work and my great grandmother passed away. But, you know, I think that you know, they've read the artist statements. I mean, when I showed it in college, it was like a similar artist statement to to what I have now. But, you know, my cousin saw it and read it and understand it. And honestly, I think that they kind of appreciate even just being included conversation and even, you know, having like every time I'm down there, it's like, what are you doing down here? Like from New York? (laughs) Like, weren't you just covering like this big thing? Like, weren't you at a, just like at a Trump rally, you know? So it's like, is there a little, uh, you know, kind of pride in what you do? Like, I mean, do they, do they see you as being successful? Yeah. Um, I think so. I don't know. I mean, I think your mother, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, to be honest, like it's almost like we never even really talk about it. Uh, I don't know if they see or appreciate what I do is the whole thing kind of too foreign to sort of even want to think about yeah I mean I don't know it's like I think they see it and maybe acknowledge it Mm -hmm. but 
not or are to you me. the fake media <laughs> well i mean and it's funny because <laughs> i news. just went to a family reunion of like a, a month ago mm-hmm. maybe a month and a half ago now but you know my grandpa i'm really focusing on right now and I really wanted to go to this family reunion because every my, time you say that, you have this expression like, like you're not going to believe what, what I'm getting into next? now, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just wanted to be there, and it was the last time that I'm sure a lot of those family members will be there together alive. Um, so oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I've been to a lot of funerals over the course of shooting this mm-hmm. documentary, but um, yeah. So I just wanted to be there for that and my grandpa you know i'm like following him around with a camera like filming him and he's like get that camera out of here <laughs> like my family just like yells at me every time i like have the camera out like and like even my grandma when she was like my great grandma when like right before she passed away she's like she was getting old it was like she didn't it was like she no longer recognized what the camera was yeah but then like occasionally it's like she would come in back back into her moment and be like get that damn camera out of my face it's like oh my god i've been shooting for hours it's like you just realized it was a camera but yeah my grandpa was like well watch out the fake news media is over here and you know i mean the only way to like deal with his other nerds just like to give it right back to him so uh-huh. it's like i was like yeah these are all hired actors this, is, this whole thing is staged it's uh-huh. like so, so so yeah so you're thinking uh you're thinking book and a documentary film yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean yeah. if not a feature length film then like certainly some sort of multimedia mm-hmm. could you see it as a, a feature piece in like the new york times or something like that or? yeah i mean yeah. for sure and like i've discussed that i just think it's you know it's going to be hard with like an editorial eye on it like i would really have to like write the piece and you know i think well, would even, you would you be willing to pair with a writer yeah if i trusted them and thought yeah, that they, they would had, have to talk to you they would go to see your family yeah 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 and i think that that's a struggle i mean it's almost something i'd have to write and i think it will essentially come down to that like it'll have to be kind of from my perspective but you know and then like also like asking some of these hard questions it's very sensitive like you know and the times did a piece not long ago and it was like i think interviewing uh, like a white supremacist guy and like getting his backstory and like that reporter got super slammed. Really? Like they had yes, to do like I a follow up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I could definitely see they, <laughs> the reporter got slammed for normalizing the KKK or something right. like that. Right. Which and could easily like, be but, but how are you going to, you know, how are we going to learn exactly. about these other cultures? How are we going to, you know, get into the tackling if these issues right. if you're just going to bury your head in the sand and say, bad, 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 bad. I don't right. want to hear about it. Right. Right. I and mean, like, yeah. and I think that that's, you know, even back to the point of like the editorial eye of it, you know, <laughs> like stories of like unity are like not, you know, <laughs> profitable. Um, so it's like. That's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's I mean, it's hard. It's easy to be like, oh, the Confederate flag. Like I, I've almost, you know, I've, I followed a lot of the, and I shot a lot of white supremacy rallies actually leading before Charlottesville. I was shooting Richard Spencer in Auburn and I was really interested in following him and seeing what he's saying. And, you know, even to the degree of like my documentary and I, and actually like one of the multimedia pieces I have now, like has a clip from Richard Spencer. Cause if you're listening to him, and you don't see who it is, it almost makes sense. And like, certainly... Oh, yeah, he's very good at couching the the racism and the, and the hatred in these very sort of logical terms of power and authority and representing people, right? Right. I'm just representing white people. I'm just trying to, you know, defend... I'm just trying yeah. to, you know, 
make sure that the it, it's it's very similar to this um, this attack on religion, right? Right. Like religion, like the like the religious culture in this country doesn't have power all of a sudden. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I mean, it's hard to talk about these topics without it being really divisive. I mm-hmm. mean, and I struggle with that even shooting it within my own family. Like after the election, like I didn't talk to them for a while. I was like, this thing is over. Fuck it. Like, I don't care what happens to you guys. Like I don't want to be part of this family and I'm not coming home for Christmas. And like, so yeah, I mean, right after the election, you know, I was in Selma the night of the election. I was actually shooting a video piece for the times and you know, the sample they gave us was like the first goal of the world cup. Um, and you know, from different locations around the world, like how people were, you know, reacting and in this like singular moment, it was like a compilation piece, but you know, I'm, and I think they sort of assumed it was going to be the same thing for this is like, so I had pitched Selma and actually had been in contact with, there were some original foot soldiers from the march um, and their kids and some, I, that's actually how I got in contact with the Selma Center. So I was with them watching and filming and waiting for this moment of reaction. And instead it just ended up being this like really long drawn out, <laughs> moment and just you know people getting upset and like the, the woman what uh, one of the women there that was a foot soldier in the original march I mean, she was a kid at that time but you know now she's an adult and she's an activist and she left like she had to leave like she just started crying she's like I, I'm not gonna sit here and you know I think maybe they all probably would have had I not been there filming but it's like finally the editor at like 1130 is like okay guys like not looking so good just like send what were they expecting Like this singular moment of like either like, you know, all right, like, yeah, like, all right, Hillary's winning. And it was like, you know, I think everybody just assumed it was going to be the first woman president. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. So because everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. That's right. The stories that were the stories that ended up being made were not the stories. Well, it was so close too. it was like everybody thought it was just going to be a steal. It was going to be called early. There was just going to be this moment. And instead it was like draw, you know, drawing out until like midnight and like, uh, mm, mm, and like how many, how how, how far can like Wolf Blitzer carry this on? (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) like in the next date. And so everybody was just kind of getting quiet and like, and was was any of that work ever published or Yeah, they did the oh, okay. they did do the compilation piece. Um mm-hmm. but it, you know, was a little bit different, I think, than what they were expecting. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. you know, then the next day my family was like, Yeah, well, yeah, yay. And right. I was just like, it was so devastating. And I was just like, you know what? <laughs> like, screw this. I'm not talking. <laughs> I'm like not coming out. And my mom and grandma, you know, I'm really close with my grandma and they were kind of like fans of Bernie during the primary and you know we talked about it a lot and they were like you know we're just not gonna vote it was like okay Mm. like (laughs) fine but then like afterwards like they're like well we voted for him and it was like uh like really and now you know every time I might like my poor mother I've probably given her total hell over the last year because every time there's like an attack on the press or like something Mm -hmm. bad I was like yeah, mom, that's right. You'll be responsible if anything <laughs> happens. So, <laughs> like, I'm holding you to the flame on this one. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, you were really in the, the thick of it then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the weeds. Wow. <laughs> 
Well, great. This has been fantastic. Thank you for basically swimming across the East River to get here today. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. Oh, no, that's Gotta all right. Gotta get that Vespa back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and if right. you find a baby blue Vespa. Oh, yeah. Are there any particular markings? or? L- is there a mirror on the right side? There's no... There's no helmet box on it. Okay. So that's all I have. Baby blue. There are only a few. Oh, right. (laughs) We ended where we started. All right. Oh, thanks again. This has been great. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.